Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman, and I'll be your host for today's interview. And today I'm speaking with Adam Sowards. Dr. Sowards is a professor emeritus of history at the University of Idaho and is the author of Making America's Public Lands, a contested history of conservation on federal lands, which came out last year in 2022 with Roman and Littlefield. Welcome to the New Books Network, Adam. Good to have you here. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. First, why don't we start, as we traditionally do here on the New Books Network, by just hearing about who you are as an author. Tell us a little bit about your background, and I'm particularly interested in how you became interested in history and the history of the American West in particular. Yeah, well, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, about 40 miles north of Seattle, and um, I have to admit that I probably didn't think a whole lot about what that meant in terms of the American West until I was uh, much, much older. Um, But I got interested in history, I think, because I have storytellers in my family, and I always enjoyed hearing stories about um, people that I didn't know who had already died before I was born, and um, I enjoyed that. When I was in school, I, you know, tended toward the history English side of the curriculum a little bit more. My oldest brother majored in history, so I, I saw that, you know, happening ahead of me. So that was, those things were familiar to me. And when I went off to college, I thought I'd probably maybe go into journalism or something like that, but took courses in history because they fulfilled requirements and they really grabbed my attention. So I kept doing it and then I kept doing it. And I didn't know what I was going to do with that, but I, I kept being fascinated by history and uh, I continue to be fascinated by history from my perspective, I remember being in college and thinking, I think history explains this world that I live in today better than anything else that I had encountered. So I think I still believe that um, for the most part. And um, in terms of my my focus on the American West, um, I guess just because it's home and maybe I'm an unimaginative person and didn't get fascinated in places I'd never been or only visited, but um, it was a place that that was familiar to me, but also uh, I wanted to understand it better. So I think that that's probably why I gravitated uh, to the history of the American West. You know, you kind of half jokingly said maybe it's just because you're unimaginative. But I mean, if that's the case, then a lot of my guests are pretty unimaginative because I ask a similar <laughs> question to a lot of people. And this is a theme that I, with 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 people that write and think about history is we tend to, and again, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but just in my experience talking to people, we tend to be kind of drawn to these places that we know best, the places that we grow up in. We look around them and we say, why is this world, why is this place that helped to form me? Why is it the way that it is, right? So I think that that's, that's, that's a very, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty typical and uh, fruitful sort of entryway into history itself. Yeah, I, I think you're right, <laughs> for sure. <clears throat> so I'm curious what brought you to this specific topic. What got you interested in uh, not just the American West, but even more specifically in America's public lands, in the topic of this book? Well, it's really accidental um, and old. Um, I went to graduate school and enrolled in classes, and I needed to come up with a topic for something to write. And my very first research seminar in grad school uh, back in the mid-1990s, I decided to look at the origins of the Forest Service, and that was almost on a whim. Um, And then I needed a uh, master's thesis topic, and because I had done that work on the origin of the Forest Service, I thought, well, gosh, I'll, I'll study this national forest that's near nearby. 
Um, so I did that. And at some point I realized, gosh, just about everything that I'm, I'm looking at connects to public lands in some way. So I've written a number of books and more articles than I can count. And um, the vast majority of them somehow connect to public lands. Um, and I've really enjoyed doing that. Um, and I find the public land super fascinating in a couple of ways. Um, one is uh, public lands are, the United States loves, and, and Americans love private property very, very much. Um, and, and I would even argue that sometimes they love it too much. But there are these, you know, 600 some million acres that do not constitute private property. And that's an interesting and a big exception to the rule. And so understanding that exception and what happens there and why they exist is really fascinating to me. And then the second part of public lands that I find really fascinating is, you know, they're owned by the people, by the citizens of the United States. And so we each have a stake in these lands. We can each make our voices heard and make claims on them. Um, I often say I'm not alone in this, but they're an experiment in democracy, and I really believe that. And I also believe that they show all the failures and all the promise that democracy shows. There are exclusions. Um, there are uh, problems when uh, majority interests don't look after minority interests, um, for example. But they're this wonderful microcosm of the American uh, experiment. So before we get too far into the book, um, we should define our terms a little bit here. So when we talk about public lands, what do we mean exactly? Let's just start by explaining what these lands are precisely. What are the different types of public lands and what purposes do they serve today? Yeah, sure. Uh, federal lands are uh, controlled by federal agencies. They're not owned by individual corporations or, or people. Um, and there's lots of different types of these federal lands or public lands. Um, the ones that I focus on in this book are those that are managed by the Forest Service, the Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, I sometimes, as a shorthand, call them forest parks, rangelands, and refuges. Not that that's a perfect descriptor of each of them, but, but that constitutes most of them. There are other federal lands that are uh, managed by the Department of Defense or the Bureau of Reclamation, but overwhelmingly, um, it's those uh, national parks, national forests, and the BLM lands and, and wildlife refuges. And they serve a variety of roles, um, and they always have served a variety of roles from ecological uh, roles and functions like watershed protection or biodiversity, habitat for biodiversity. Um, they, they are places where there are forests and, um, and red rocks and desert ecosystems, so a variety of diverse uh, ecosystems. They also prov uh, provide some economic uh, roles. They've been a place where uh, timber sales have happened and where uh, ranchers run their cattle or their sheep. Um, they're also a great source of identity and an inspiration for many. Some people who say, for instance, run cattle on the public lands have their identity very much wrapped up into that. But also I think people's identities get wrapped up into, say, parks that they visit, places they love to hike, 
um, think of long trail hikers who run the who who uh, who hike the Pacific Crest Trail, for example, or the Continental Divide Trail. They're very much identity is caught up into these these public lands that they cross on these adventures. Um, so they, I mean, <laughs> like the democratic experiment that they're part of, they they sort of represent um, all of us and and all of these different possible. Uh, components of uh, of life. Uh, I, I think also of you know if you might sometimes visit someone's house or go into someone's office and you might see like a framed like national parks poster for instance of like a representing a place that they visited that like had a large impact on them. You're talking about these public lands and identity. Really got my brain going there. That's that's a really good point too. Yeah. Um, I have one. One last kind of uh, pre question before we get into the story that you tell of the book. I'm always interested in who, what, what audiences authors are aiming for here. And in particular, I'm always, I find it really fascinating when people with uh, academic backgrounds try to write for an audience that isn't strictly academic. And I mean, you know, often this is sort of a divide that is sort of constructed, right? Like whether it exists or not is, you know, sort of, sort of a, an open question. But this is a book that's not published by an academic press. It's written in very clear pretty jargon-free prose. It's not, uh, uh, you know, kind of weighed down by footnotes or anything. I'm curious um, why you wanted to write this book for this particular audience. Uh, Why not aim for a more academic audience here? Why aim for kind of a wider public? Uh, What a great question, Steve. Um, I'll answer it in two ways. One, it's part of uh, the American Ways series that the press uh, offers, and this was the format for that series. Um, So, I, at that level, I had no choice <laughs> to to write for the series meant to write in this way. Um, the second part of my answer is this is the way that I've come to be most comfortable as a writer, um, and my interest in re- in reaching audiences uh, some time ago transcended the academic, and I wanted to always to reach. Um, whoever that elusive general reader might be, um, I, uh, for all the utility that they have, uh, academic arguments um, uh, lost some of their luster for me uh, years back, and I wanted to take what I knew and could gather from those uh, those debates and those conversations that are happening in uh, specialized journals and in uh, classrooms and, and bring it to people who might uh, not have that same interest, that same level of, say, nuanced interest, and try to tell these broader stories and um, get them engaged to what got me interested in history, which is this is a way to understand why the world looks the way it does. And I hope that I've done at least a little bit of that. I certainly think that you did. And um, that also makes it a perfect book for for this show, because that's exactly the kind of listenership that we have in mind is sort of an informed person that knows a little bit about history, but maybe is not engaged with or has no interest in those those kind of deeper, as you said, kind of more nuanced or more specialized arguments. So it's it's a book that's very much in line with the mission of the New Books Network, too. Excellent. So let's get into the story of this book then, the story of the public lands themselves. Let's go all the way back to the start. Where does the concept of public land come from? Uh, how is it introduced in North America? What are the kind of deeper roots of, of what we're talking about here? Yeah, there's, I, I don't know exactly how to answer that question. So I'm, I'm going to go at it 
from kind of the opposite. So what aren't public lands? So even before the U.S. Constitution was ratified, there was a need for these newly uh, independent states and this new nation to figure out what to do with all this land that was not that was at that time was in the West. So what to do with it? And during the time when the Articles of Confederation was the law of the land, the idea came, okay, what we will do with those unclaimed lands is we will organize them and uh, we will auction them off. And for the next uh, six or seven decades, uh, Congress came up with a variety of different ways to take these lands that were held collectively by the nation and got them as quickly as possible into the hands of individual people or businesses, as the case might be. Uh, and that moved uh, pretty rapidly and millions and millions of acres went into, um, into individual private property status. The most famous example of this, of course, is the Homestead Act of 1862. Um, but there were lots of other uh, uh, legislation along the way to, to get to that point. As the United States acquired more land, especially in the far American West, uh, things got a little more complicated. Um, so the 160 acres that the Homestead Act offered was either way too much or way too little, depending on the property, depending on the landscape itself and its ecological capacities. And so people like, say, John Wesley Powell in the 1870s, he was a government scientist and a reform-minded man, started coming up with other ideas. Maybe in land that needed to be irrigated, the, 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 the free land would be a smaller acreage, so it would be more easily managed. And maybe land that was a little sparser, a little more arid, and could only maybe uh, support a herd of cattle, maybe they sh uh, that should be a larger uh, bit of land that should go out. But still, that idea was to make it private property. But then... When, for example, confronting the Rocky Mountains or the Cascade Mountains or Sierra Nevadas in California, like these big swaths of forest, there's an idea, well, maybe like individuals shouldn't own that. Maybe the government should maintain that. At the same time that that idea starts to emerge, there's a big fear in the United States. This is the age of wood. And the concern is that we're going to run out of trees. We're going to run out of timber. Um, and so the government perhaps should protect some of this to stave off what they call the timber famine. So these different re reform ideas and ecological realities start to merge together at the end of the 19th century. And the idea comes that perhaps there are some resources in some landscapes that don't work as individual private property ownership, and they should be in some other status. Um, and along with all of that, there then also is the idea that some landscapes are so beautiful, are so scenic, are so special that no one individual person should control it and um, uh, make it inaccessible to others. There was some concern, for example, of the commercialization that had happened at Niagara Falls. And so there's a desire not to have that same sort of thing um, happen in places like Yellowstone or Yosemite.
So things begin to change by the time we get to around the late 19th century and the rise of conservation politics. This becomes kind of a critical moment in the history of public lands as people are rethinking what should be done with these lands, what kind of uses these lands should have, or whether the idea of public lands is even a good idea at all. So what is changing in this era and how are these kind of ideas about the meaning of and the uses of these public lands in flux during this era of uh, increased urbanization and increased industrialization and uh, uh, often kind of rampant runaway resource usage? Yeah, so all of those things that you mentioned are very much uh, what's prompting these conversations. So the increased industrialization is the thing that allows the deforestation to proceed so quickly that raises the concerns that a timber famine might be coming. Um, the rapid urbanization at the end of the 19th century, fueled in part by that industrialization and fueled also by immigration, um, leads some people to start arguing like we need to have these, we need refuges so people can get away from the cities and, and you know, recharge their batteries as it were. Um, so those are some of the things that are happening outside those public lands that, to create places of refuge or to reserve resources. Um, at the same time, there's a growing political movement. Uh, we often call it the, the, the progressive movement now, and it emerges in the late 19th, early 20th century. This is a really vigorous time for reform and government and a great deal of confidence, actually, that that experts, scientifically trained, university trained experts would be able to apply reason um, and uh, create efficient systems. Now, this went into factories and it also went into places like forests, the idea that we might be able to apply scientific knowledge and, and get the outcomes that we want. So these things are all coming together with the rise of the conservation movement at the turn of the 20th century. Um, the hope was that in the words of the first chief forester of the Forest Service, that we would, his name was Gifford Pinchot, he would, that they would be able to create the greatest good for the greatest number for the longest time. So that was the hope of, of these folks, that if we reserve these lands in government control in perpetuity, we would be able to have access to these resources over the long run. And so they created institutions. Um, those institutions sort of appear at different moments um, as Congress is, uh, Congress, for example, created the capacity to have what were first called forest reserves and then national forests. Uh, they did that almost 15 years before they actually got around to creating the Forest Service. And the first national park, Yellowstone, which was in 1872, um, was managed for a while by the U.S. Army because the Park Service itself did not exist until 1916. So it takes a while for the institutional capacity to build up. Um, and so management was perhaps a little inconsistent um, um, in, in that early period as, there, as the government is still trying to figure out, like, what are the purposes of these places? Um, how are they going to be managed? Who's going to be able to use them and how much use uh, will be allowed in national forest versus a national park, for example. And all those conflicts that you just articulated are, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of omnipresent. They're, what's a better way to put it is they're these sort of, they're kind of the central 
uh, uh, questions or the kind of central friction points of the idea of public lands themselves. You know, who are they for? How exactly they should be used? So I'm curious in this, what we might call like the early era, right? Maybe the first century or so of public lands in the United States. What were some of these conflicts? What were some of the objections? What were some of these friction points that arise over the idea of and the use of public lands? Oh, I could go on and on and on and on for for this answer, for sure. Um, One way to think about uh, one of the first conflicts is the notion of exclusion. And um, indigenous peoples were excluded um, from uh, some of the national parks, and some of them, uh, they they remained. Um, But that exclusion certainly was a conflict um, between uh, either government agents or and, and indigenous people. There are other people who were excluded from from forests and parks as well. Uh, maybe hunters uh, could be excluded at times. Um, sometimes that was done in coordination with local labor actions to make it so that striking workers might go back to work sooner because they couldn't go hunt on on nas- national lands. Um, other exclusions um, were more. Uh, figurative. Uh, for example, early on, the Forest Service decides they're going to exclude fire from the landscape, um, which is not an easy thing to do, um, as all of us know, as we live through the sort of consequences of that of that decision. Um, predators were excluded from these lands as much as possible. There's a massive campaign to exclude uh, mountain lions and wolves from from the continent, frankly. So there's lots of efforts to exclude people and forces that weren't uh, supposed to be there. Then there's sort of, or in the in terms of what the ideal managers wanted. Then there's also just conflict that seems more economic or more political. When the Forest Service first attempts to charge fees to allow uh, livestock interests to graze their animals on public lands. There's an enormous uproar um, and lawsuits, of course, that go all the way to the Supreme Court. The ranching interests don't think the federal government has the right to do this, and the Supreme Court disagreed, so that's fine. And then there's uh, questions about which use in which place. Um, Later on, this gets articulated around the concept of multiple use, that these lands should have multiple uses, watershed protection, wildlife habitat, um, forestry, etc. There's a really early on conflict that got lots of attention. Um, I almost hesitate to, to bring it up because it gets talked about so often, but a valley adjacent to Yosemite, Hetch Hetchy Valley, was seen as an ideal spot to put a dam um, that would then provide water source for San Francisco. And a debate uh, ensues whether the dam should be built or whether it sh- the valley should be protected more or less as it was and be an inspirational place for park visitors to go to. So all of, there's all of these sorts of conversations that, that are, are happening at the time and conflict that's happening um, at the time. Um, yeah, I think I think that covers at least a, a broad range of it. And and as you said, you could we could talk about this for for a long time. I mean, the story of conflict over those public lands is you know it's not the whole story, but there's there's a lot of interesting directions to go in. But that that does kind of cover a, a pretty good range of them, though. Yeah. Um, you talked a little while ago about 
different sort of uh, uh, institutions managing these lands and uh, how these institutions are kind of figuring it out as they go. Um, by the time the, the public land system or systems begin to mature, as we get into the 20th uh, century, who is managing and controlling these public lands as the 19th century ticks over into the 20th? And how are these managers, uh, these institutions, these, these groups of people, how are they managing these lands? And in particular, in the book, you talk about the acquisition of new lands, which I actually thought was kind of a, an interesting wrinkle here. So can you talk a bit about how new lands are entering into the public land system, too? Yeah, I'll try to hit all those parts of that. Yeah, that's question. a lot there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> as best I can. Um, the... The idea is that these agencies will be managed by experts, people who have some sort of training um, in forestry, for example, um, or wildlife, what we might call wildlife biology. Now, some of the specialists that or specialties that are needed aren't yet invented. So um, there's a little bit of flying by the seat of their pants, I think, in these early years, for sure. Because these agencies are are run by these trained specialists mostly, that means that they're pretty much mostly white men with university degrees. But you do get some locals working, say, as local rangers in the in the local forest service or forest district. Um, you might have ranchers working for what becomes the Bureau of Land Management. So there is some local uh, local folks who are involved, and it's important to the agencies, especially the Forest Service and and the BLM, to have uh, to serve local communities, even though these are national federal lands, there's a desire to uh, have as much comity as possible um, with those interests that are involved. Um, but ultimately, in, in terms of the question about who's preserving these lands or who's, how are they acquired, um, it sort of depends, um, which is always the answer that historians give for things, right? Um, Congress creates um, national parks, and presidents, at least initially, created national forests um, because that's what Congress told presidents to do. Um, it was in the authorizing legislation. National monuments um, were reserved mainly for presidents, although on occasion Congress created those. Um, so it gets a little bit confusing which type of public land, who has the authorizing possibility, uh, the ability to do that. So it's not actually the agencies themselves that are acquiring these lands, at least um, in the ultimate. Uh, it, ultimately, it comes from the federal government. However, um, there is this desire to grow these systems. And one of the first places where this is of interest is what about the East? Shall we acquire, can we acquire um, as a nation, as a government, can we acquire national forests in the East? Because the first national forests are carved out of that land that was not claimed by individuals. So in that respect, in the West, it offered a very easy solution. You just say, all of these millions of acres that are, say, along the spine of the Rocky Mountains that no one has claimed because they can't make a living on it, those are going to just go into a national forest. That was easy. No purchase necessary. Just put the marks on the map and keep people from making homestead claims. But in the East, those, those lands would have already been claimed by, say, logging companies. What happened was the federal government bought out private owners of landscapes that 
that a forest or could be forested land that protected watersheds. This starts with the Weeks Act in 1911, um, which specifically is about acquiring forest land to protect navigable rivers. But it allows the purchase of lots and lots of watersheds in, uh, in, in the eastern part of the United States. Many of those lands don't have to be bought, though, because what timber companies did was they went up to the mountains, cut down all the trees, and then left town and stopped paying taxes. So these are tax delinquent lands that are acquired pretty easily by the federal government. There is some coercion involved in um, buying out some people, especially in some national parks like Great Smoky Mountains National Park um, in, in the southeast part of the United States. But for the most part, the acquisition of the land is done without tremendous coercion. Um, and then uh, different categories of landscape get changed. So what might have started out as a national monument uh, appointed as such by a president, for example, Grand Canyon, then gets turned into a national park by Congress. So the national monuments are were often not always, but we're often sort of a way station, a way for a president to quickly protect the landscape and then allow Congress to figure out other ways to protect it in a national park um, at a later date. And around the midpoint of the 20th century, sort of the, the post-World War II era, this, this moment when America's suburbs are booming and uh, you, have, you have a lot of other kind of similar changes in, in American life, you once again see the public lands taking on sort of a new form, taking on a more prominent role in particular in American recreation. This is an era of uh, real explosion in car culture. I believe it's in the late 1940s or early 1950s when car ownership kind of tips over above, I want to say uh, 60% or so in that era. So almost so the majority of American families have an automobile and are using it to travel to these often very remote places to America's public lands. So how did Americans visiting these places, visiting these lands in greater and greater numbers as tourists, how is this changing the, the approaches to management that the U.S. government is taking? How is it changing the lands themselves? And how is it changing the meaning of these lands? That's a great question. I'm going to push it back a little bit early. In the interwar period between uh, World War I and World War II, um, as the automobile was first starting to proliferate across the landscape, and, and you characterize that really well, people are driving everywhere at this time. Um, during the interwar era, there are a number of people who start to um, start to look askance at this. This is not great. We shouldn't have roads everywhere. Cars shouldn't go everywhere. And so this this burgeoning idea of wilderness, there should be places set aside where you can't do that, where there's a different type of recreation, a recreation that's more rugged, less mechanized. So that starts to crystallize in the 1920s and 30s. But you're absolutely right. It really takes off um, in the post-World War II era. And part of that um, is technological. There are better rafts, for example, to go down whitewater rafting. Um, there eventually become better backpacks to do that sort of hiking. Um, but it also has to do with uh, economic changes. There's relative prosperity in the post-war period, and there's also some pent-up demand as uh, Americans recover from first uh, the sort of deprivation that the depression caused and then uh, the deprivation that was created by uh, World War II and the need to ration things. And so people get out in the 40s and 50s and um, there's 
there's sort of two types of recreation that you really you see emerge at this time and one is there's a desire to have some comfortable recreation and so there's demands for roads um, and hotels and campgrounds and those sorts of things uh, this is best illustrated perhaps by mission 66 which was launched in the mid 50s with the park service and the park service just goes on a sort of rampant building spree parking lots and ranger stations and roads and roads and roads um, and makes to to accommodate all of these people who want to visit these beautiful places across the united states uh, but then there's another type of recreation uh, that is demanding places that don't have roads and rivers that don't have dams um, a desire to not maximize profit and production everywhere and that the public land should be a place where forests might remain intact. So there's a real, uh, uh, I guess there's a real uh, movement of people moving into these places and public lands are easy to access um, because they aren't owned. There are no gates across them so you can get out into them. Um, and that, that uh, getting people out into those places what, one of the things that it does is it makes them aware of how those lands are being used. So people backpacking or um, rafting will see, oh, they're going to put a dam here or there was a big timber sale and and an organized movement comes to stop those things. And so that's when the wilderness movement comes together and, and advocates for uh, what becomes the 1964 Wilderness Act. I do want to note, however, at the same time that there's this movement to not build dams and movement not to have timber sales everywhere and not to build roads everywhere, at the same time those things are happening, huge numbers of roads are being built and unprecedented dam building is happening. This is really a time, and, and timber sales are, are ratcheting up and up and up. So this is a time of maximization, I like to think of it, and it's maximizing both the tourist experience like let's get as many people into Yellowstone as we can and, and make it as comfortable for them as possible. At the same time, let's maximize timber production as much we can. So there's, a, I think, a, a, an optimism in that early post-war era, not even early, but in the general post-war era, that we can accommodate all of these multiple uses so that we'll be able to do this, that we can have lots of federal timber going to local mills, and we can also have lots of uh, wild places and lots of uh, parks that accommodate a whole bunch of visitors. And you see all the numbers for uses of these lands just really skyrocketing in these years. And then a couple decades later, you know, the, the same era, you know, from the 1960s through the 1970s into the 1980s is politically in the United States when you see the conservative movement on the ascendancy that's often, you know, kind of pegged with the start of, of, of you know, Barry Goldwater's presidency, uh, presidential campaign in the 1960s up through Nixon and then kind of culminating in Ronald Reagan and it, from the perspective of, you know, environmental history in the American West, the uh, appointment of James Watt as the Secretary of the Interior. So how are the public lands implicated in the conservative movement? As the conservative movement is becoming increasingly powerful, increasingly ascendant in American politics, public lands are taking on 
new meanings once again. They're once more being kind of, uh, you know, batted around like this kind of political football or this political talking point, but with very real implications on the ground, particularly in the American West. So can you explain a bit between the connection of public lands to conservatism? Maybe talk a little bit in particular about this, uh, uh, this political movement that sometimes is called the Sagebrush Rebellion. Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, this is a big, complicated topic. There were always opponents of the federal lands, and often um, a sort of simplistic read on that is that economic self-interest suggests that uh, we should turn against these places. But sometimes those got wrapped up into political principles that the, the Constitution doesn't allow this, or we should have a limited federal government, and if you are in a county where more than 90% of the land is controlled by the federal government, that does not feel like limited government at all. And Nevada is the state with the highest percentage of, of federal land. And that's where the Sagebrush Rebellion really gets started. And the assembly in Nevada in 1979 um, said that, well, the federal government doesn't have the right to to own land here, um, specifically Bureau of Land Management land. And so um, it was going to take over that land and, you know, sell it to the highest bidder or have a new like homesteading process return. And this idea sort of spreads throughout the West in various ways. And you'd often hear at that time and since um, the idea that these lands should be returned to the states. Um, this is this is a misreading of history and law pretty badly. Uh, it was never state land, so it was couldn't be returned. Um, but it was very very popular as an idea. Um, this is expanding at the same time as we're gearing up for the election in 1980 that ultimately uh, puts Ronald Reagan in the White House. It's also at the tail end of an enormous success. Yeah, in terms of environmental legislation, you have the Wilderness Act in 1964 and the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act four years later, the National Environmental Policy Act um, in 1970, the Endangered Species Act in 1973, the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, which is really central to BLM land and, and really what sparks this opposition. And then there's a bunch of wilderness preservation in Alaska that Carter enacts. And so in that respect, the Sagebrush Rebellion is really um, sort of a culminating backlash against this enormous success of um, primarily, uh, it's bipartisan, lots of the, those laws were, were passed with huge bipartisan majorities, um, but they're led largely by Democrats, um, especially as we move through the 1970s. And so that conservative reaction, um, builds with a larger conservative movement and reaction against the things that happened out of the 1960s and 1970s. And you see out of, after the election of Reagan, and Reagan, when he's campaigning, he says, count me as a sagebrush rebellion. So he, he takes on this as a, cause, as a regional cause for him. But we see this conservative reaction kind of pulse periodically since um, it kind of has a new uptick. Um, it sort of the sagebrush, original sagebrush rebellion sort of plays out by 1983 or 84. Then it revives again when Bill Clinton becomes president. Um, you see it again during um, the Obama uh, presidency as well. So it, it's it's. It's both longstanding, but every new sort of iteration of it has a slightly different tinge and tone to it. 
So then, what is the status of America's public lands today? Um, a lot of the, the the processes and the changes that we've been talking about for for the last little while, they're still ongoing, of course. And I mean, obviously, there are new challenges being faced um, as well. So, what are the challenges that they face? Um, how are the public lands viewed by different stakeholders here in the early twenty first century? And you know, I'm always a little reticent to to ask historians to make predictions about the future. That's you know, not not what we get paid for. But nonetheless, you know, looking looking ahead through the rest of the 21st century, um, what do you see as the future of America's public lands? Yeah, I, I don't like that future question um, <laughs> at all, but I'll do my best to, to suggest something. I mean, these lands are never outside of history. And so the, the challenges and status of the public lands are the same challenges and status of the entire nation and in our interconnected globe, it's, it's the world. There have always been contested places um, and with people debating about them. And so the challenges are those. It's a challenge about access and democratic access, a recognition that these are places that have been taken. Um, from others and a place places that have not always welcomed the diversity of American society. Right now, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior is Deb Holland, who's Laguna Pueblo, and the head of the Park Service is Chuck Sands, who is Cayuse and Walla Walla. And this is the first time that we have had Indigenous peoples heading those two uh, big organizations, and that signals a change. And I think we'll see more signs of co-management of these public lands. For example, um, Bears Ears National Monument in southeastern Utah um, is is co-managed uh, with local tribes. I think perhaps we'll see some returning land from the federal public land system to tribal entities. Another great challenge, of course, today for the globe, but also for public lands is climate change. Um, it's gonna, there's going to be a time not too far in the future when Glacier National Park doesn't have glaciers that it can show. Um, that's very clear. There's also drilling of, for oil and gas on public lands and the drilling of uh, or the, the, those petroleum products is what's fueling climate change. So that's really these, these, these challenges of the day are very much implicated within national lands. Um, the climate change situation, it, what it means for, say, wildfire or wildlife that that uh, both live in these places, um, we'll see uh, how, how we can manage those things as we move forward. And I think the challenges only increase. And to address most challenges requires money. And I think most of these agencies are probably not funded to the degree that they need to be funded to properly take care of these places and the people that rely on them and the creatures that rely on them. Um, so again, these I think are, are challenges that are common to all of us and uh, all parts of our uh, society and body politic. So as we begin to to wrap up here, um, I always like to ask my guests uh, 
to put themselves in the shoes of their readers, thinking back on this book from some point in the future, maybe in a year or five years or so, and thinking about what they would like that reader to remember about their book. What is one big takeaway, thinking back on on this project, on this book that they've read, that they might have and take with them a few years down the line? And often I'll ask this question, and my guests will say, like, oh, that's a really difficult question to ask. So if it's a hard question, I'm sorry. But I, I, I like to think that it's, you know, taking this kind of alternate perspective on a book like this can sometimes be useful too. Yeah, well, I hope that a reader of this book sees the uh, sees the public lands as an experiment in democracy. And I, that can sound really highfalutin and um, perhaps too idealistic. Um, occasionally I get that way. But these are places where the public, as broadly as we can constitute it, have a stake. And um, I use a metaphor throughout the book about a table that I draw from uh, Hannah Arendt. And this idea of getting people around a table and that the table can focus people's attention and work to, to solve a problem and to figure out a plan of action, I think is really, really important. And I note very clearly that not everyone got to sit at that table all the time. And if you were one of the people that had a seat at the table early on, and then later on, more people were sitting there, your voice did diminish because there were more people's voices you had to listen to. And it's, a, I think, a really useful metaphor, um, not just for public lands, but more broadly, but a way that I hope we can appreciate how we make political decisions in a democracy when we all have a stake at something. Um, and I guess a secondary takeaway, I hope people go and visit these places and appreciate them and appreciate the people that worked to uh, protect them and to manage them and use them um, because uh, it's really important to know what we're fighting for, know what we're protecting and know what's at stake. So I hope people in, enjoy uh, these places. They're, they're really uh, national treasures. Yeah, and I think that no matter where you are uh, uh, sitting in the United States listening to this, there's probably public lands in, what, probably a, a 50-mile radius of you? Don't want to put you on the spot too much, but there's public lands in every single state and, and very close to most population centers, right? That's true. Um, there are some places that it's going to take you a little bit longer to get to than, than 50 miles probably, but um, for the most part, they're pretty close by. And if you're in the West, they're, they're really close by. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then finally, I always like to, at the end of my conversations, uh, get a preview from my guests as to what they are working on next. Um, you know, every historian that I know, uh, uh, every writer that I know, they always have sort of a, a next idea in mind, something that they're toying with. So I know this book hasn't been out for that long, but a year or so might be enough time to be getting something new, sort of get the ball rolling on a new project. So uh, Adam, what have you been working on uh, since uh, the completion of this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I've left my academic position. As you introduced me, you noted that I'm Professor Emeritus now. I put in enough time to to call it retirement, but I have many working years ahead of me. And at the moment, I'm working on a lot smaller things. Um, I launched a little weekly newsletter that's about place history and writing. And so uh, every week I get to learn something new and write about it. And I love being able to do that. And I'm really working now more as a as a freelance writer, not just a historian. So uh, I've spent my whole career looking to the past, and now I can widen my angle and look at the contemporary scene a little bit, which I like. 
And the place where I live now is a really rich agricultural community. And so um, all of that land pretty much is private land. So I remain fascinated by this interplay of the public and the private and how benefits and harms from each go in those different directions. Um, So which I think is just one more way of saying I continue to be fascinated by democracy and what the trade-offs are for individual and broader public uh, um, life. And so um, that can take lots of different forms, whether it's um, looking at migratory birds that that also find home here or what uh, co-managed state parks might look like between the state and uh, local tribal communities. So um, when you have an interest in democracy and you have an interest in the environment uh, that you're pretty much never going to run out of topics to look at. Where can uh, folks tuning in, where can they find your newsletter? Um, You can find it on Substack. If you search my name, you can go to my website, which is adamsowards.net. There are links there um, along with links to uh, most of my other writing as well. And I'll be sure to include a a link to both of those places in the show notes for this episode. Great. Dr. Adam Sowards is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Idaho and is the author of, among many other books, the new book, Making America's Public Lands, A Contested History of Conservation on Federal Lands, which came out last year in 2022 with uh, Roman and Littlefield. Thank you so much for joining me today, Adam. It was good talking to you. It was a pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me.